Well, good morning, and we welcome you once again to the Mission Viejo Church of Christ. It is so good to have you all back. Last week was Easter, and we had an amazing service and a great number of folks here in the auditorium. So we are so thankful that you decided to spend your Sunday morning here with us, whether you're here live in the auditorium or in the courtyard or whether you're part of our live stream audience. We are just thankful to be able to spend Sunday morning worshiping the one true and living God. We haven't done Nehemiah for the last few weeks. Um, as most of you know, last week we had Easter. Uh, the week before that, I was out uh, with some back pain. And it's been a few weeks since we've had a chance to dig back into the book of Nehemiah. So today we are going to get back on track with the book of Nehemiah. Now, just to bring you guys all back up to speed in case you've forgotten or in case you haven't been with us, we are looking at the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is such a powerful and important book. See, we have this gentleman named Nehemiah. And he was actually the cupbearer to the king. So he was a very uh, high-profile person who had this big, important job. Um, he was basically the wine taster for the king. And he was kind of the king's right-hand man. If you wanted to go see the king, you kind of had to go through Nehemiah to get there. And God placed on his heart that he needed to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So this is kind of what, how we got started with our story was that God had just placed this on Nehemiah's heart. And we've looked at how this has kind of progressed week after week. And we've looked at what a great example Nehemiah is of what a good Christian leader looks like. And that's just something that's so powerful for all of us. Whether you're a leader at your job, it doesn't matter. Because you're a leader in your home. You're a leader of your children. You're a leader of your family. You're a leader of your circle of influence. And Nehemiah just sets this great example of what a leader looks like and how a leader, a Christian leader, leads. And I hope that you'll continue to pay attention to that as we move forward in this series. But just to give you guys a quick update, because we've been gone for a couple of weeks, a quick construction update for you. So when we pick up in chapter 7, which is where we're going to be here in just a few minutes, we see that construction began about August 11th, 455 B.C., or before Christ. And we see that, <clears throat> excuse me, construction was completed on October the 2nd. Now, if you do the math, that's only 52 days to complete this project. Now, I want to think about that for just a second. This was a huge project. If you remember when we started, the report that came back to Nehemiah was that the city was in shambles. The walls had been torn down. The gates had been burned. So they weren't necessarily starting from scratch, but pretty close to it. And in 52 days, Nehemiah and his crew rebuilt the city. Now, keep in mind, they're not working with cranes and cement trucks and all of the latest construction equipment. They're doing this primitive, hands-on. This would not have been an easy task to do. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that they ran into all kinds of opposition as well. Not only were they building the wall, they were trying to protect the city and even protecting themselves. We talked a few weeks back about how they were working with one hand and holding a sword for protection with the other. So when you think, <coughs> excuse me, when you think about this, 52 days is just amazing. Now, you and I know this was a God thing, but here's the really cool part. Even the naysayers, even the people who were trying to stop them from building the wall, understood that there's no way they could have done this without the help of God. There's no way they could have done this without the help of God. And this was such a powerful 
thing that they were doing that even the people who, if you remember a few weeks back, were the naysayers saying, there's no way they're rebuilding this city. We're not going to let that happen. Even they, as we progress through the story, are starting to come around and say, there's no way they did that without some kind of help. And they're starting to see God in the situation, even though they've been trying, <coughs> even though they've been trying and trying and trying to stop it. So this brings us to kind of what we're going to talk about today. So what's next? The city's been rebuilt, but what's next? It's time to get the people back together. Because remember, up to this point, right, Nehemiah has only had this small group of people that he had kind of recruited. And we talked about the fact that it took all kinds of people to pull this off. Everyone from the high priests to the tent makers to the perfume makers, right, got involved and used their time and their talent and their abilities to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But what good is the city without the people? So that's what we're going to look at today. <coughs> this includes every name, every person, and every family. It's time to repopulate the city. Now, is, does this starting to, 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 to ring a chord with anybody of kind of where we're at right now? Right? Things are finally starting to kind of open back up again. Right? Some of us are getting vaccines and we're starting to feel more comfortable around people. And, and we're seeing each week that we come to church, right? We're seeing more and more people coming back. And that's what we're going to look at today is how do we, how did Nehemiah rebuild the community? And how do we here at the Mission Viejo Church of Christ rebuild our community? And that's what we're going to talk about today. The bottom line, <coughs> Nehemiah wasn't just rebuilding a city. He was rebuilding a community. Because guess what? Buildings and cities don't matter to God. God doesn't care that we have this beautiful church campus that's worth millions of dollars. That doesn't make any difference whatsoever. Thank you. That doesn't make any difference whatsoever to God. What God cares about is us, you and me, the people, the community that meets here at this church, the ecclesia that meets here at this church, which, of course, is the Greek word that simply means a gathering, an assembly. See, it's great that we have this beautiful building, and I'm thankful that we do. Trust me, I like coming into this beautiful building just as much as I hope you do. But the building isn't what it's all about. And see, Nehemiah gets this, right? They rebuilt the city. They rebuilt the walls. They rebuilt the gates. But now he knew, and God placed on his heart, okay, great, you've got the city. Now let's get the people back together. I want you to do something for me. I want you to turn to the person next to you and tell them, you matter to God. Because each and every one of us matters to God. You're not just another number. You're not just a face to God. You matter to God. And he's happy that you're with us today. He's happy that you're here in this place or that you're with us online. That you're taking time out of your schedule to be the church. To be with one another. Because you matter to God. And see, Nehemiah got this. He said, hey, what good is it to rebuild the city if we don't have the people? So let's jump into our text, and we're going to kind of be all over the map today. But we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 7. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, open your Bible app or your laptop or wherever you like to read Scripture from. And I want you to read along with me as we unpack this story of how Nehemiah rebuilt the community. 
And we're going to spend some time in the Old Testament today. We're going to spend some time in the New Testament today. And we're even going to jump all the way to Revelation today. So it's going to be a fun ride. Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2 says, After after the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. It says, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most. Now, I love what he says here. Because at first you think, oh, he just kind of appointed his brother. That's kind of nepotism, right? That's kind of what we would call that today. Like when you're in line for a promotion and your boss all of a sudden hires his cousin or his nephew or his brother. But, but why Hananiah? Why was he the right man for the job? The scripture tells us because he was a man of integrity and he feared God more than most. What does that mean to fear God more than most? Does that mean we should be afraid? No, I don't think it does. I don't think that means we should physically be afraid. But what it means is we should be understanding of who God is. We should be understanding of what God has done and what God is capable of doing. That's not to say we should live our lives every day in fear, but the fear should be there somewhere in the back of our minds of knowing what God is capable of doing. So we need to be God-fearing people of integrity. What would people say about you? When you tell somebody, yeah, I attend the Mission Viejo Church of Christ, what's the first thing that comes to their mind? When somebody says, hey, you know that Mary Vaughn? What's the first thing that they think of? Wouldn't that be fantastic if somebody described you as God-fearing and full of integrity? What a great way to be described. You know, we look at the Old Testament and we think about David, right? David was described as a man after God's own heart. Now, we know David made his mistakes, just like you and I do. But he was known as to be a man after God's own heart. What bigger compliment could you get to be called a man after God's own heart or a man or woman who is a God-fearing person of integrity? See, Nehemiah (coughs) knew that there was a value to appointing leaders who were God-fearing and full of integrity. He knew that. He knew that that was important because it starts with leadership. We have an amazing leadership team here at our church. And I believe that every one of them is a God-fearing person full of integrity. And I believe that God has put them in the positions that they're in and in the places that they're in for a reason. Because, see, he placed on their hearts to be elders of this church or deacons of this church. He placed that on their hearts. And he did that for a reason. If there's a common theme of who Nehemiah was, he was a God-fearing person, and he was in tune with that relationship that he had with God. Because over and over again, as we've read multiple times every week, God placed it on his heart. So not only is this just a great example of his leadership abilities, but he knew that God-fearing people were who he wanted to put in charge. Let's continue verse 3. It says, I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. It says, while the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. 
It says, also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some at their own houses. Now, this, this, this would be an easy one to kind of gloss over, right? And just say, okay, he's kind of setting the parameters of what he expects. But this would be a little bit unusual because ordinarily a city would open the gates at sunup, right? And they would close the gates at sundown so that overnight the city was protected. Well, Nehemiah knew a couple of things. One, he knew that there were people out to get them. And number two, he didn't have the manpower to do that. He knew he didn't have the manpower to protect the city of God from sunrise to sundown. He just didn't have enough people. He didn't have enough able-bodied men to act as guards at these gates. So he says, hey, we're not going to do that. We're going to wait until the middle of the day to open the gates, and then we're still going to close them at sundown. And that would allow him to post people to protect the city and to protect their own homes. Let's go to verse 4. <clears throat> it says, now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the, house had, the houses had not yet been rebuilt. It says, so my God put it into my heart. There it is again. So my God put it into my heart, it says, to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. So he's going to take a census. It says, I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. It says, this is what I found written there. So he's looking, right, at the records of the people who have come back from exile. And and if you're familiar with the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 2, there's a very similar story of of the way that the families returned, that they returned from exile. And it's very similar to what we have here. But he's basically going to take a census, right? This is his way of starting to bring people back in to the city, these people who had been in exile, because we know, right, that when they came back from exile, only a small number of them went back to Jerusalem. Because remember, the city was in shambles. So they all kind of dispersed. So Nehemiah is going to try and bring these folks back together. <coughs> I want to take a little journey over here to the book of Luke. So if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 14. And we're going to jump into the New Testament and look at the parable of the banquet. Because I think this is exactly what Nehemiah is trying to do. So again, Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 16, says, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. It says, at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. (coughs) So back in this day, right, they didn't have email. They didn't have text messages, right? They couldn't just text people and say, hey, dinner's ready, come to the table. He sent his servants out to get those people who had been invited and say, hey, come to the feast. The banquet's ready. Verse 18 picks up and says, but they, are, they, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And another said, I just got married, so I can't come. So, so, so he's offering this, this feast, right, this banquet. And he's invited these folks to come. And can anybody relate to this? At the last minute, now everybody can't come. Everybody's busy. They're too busy to come to the feast. And sometimes we get in that same kind of mindset, in that same frame of mind of, look, I know I should be going to church on Sunday morning, but I've just got other things I need to do. 
I'm busy. We live a busy life. And that's exactly what was going on way back in Luke's account. Is These people who were invited, who had said they would come, when it came down to it, they were just too busy. So what did he do? Did he cancel the feast? Did he just say, you know what, never mind then? No. It says the servant came back and reported this to his master. It says, then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. So he went to those people who were invited, and they didn't want to come. So he says, let's, let's broaden our horizons. If you like to fish, let's throw out another net, and let's see if we can get more people to come to the banquet. There's plenty of room. Verse 23 says, Then the master told the servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes, and compel them to come in, so that the house will be full. This is a parable, right? We know that Jesus taught in parables because that was, that was the way that people could understand what he was trying to teach. He wanted the house to be full. Isn't that exactly what we want? This is the house of the Lord, right? Don't we want the house to be full? Wouldn't you love to walk through those doors on a Sunday morning and you're like, I can't even find a place to sit. Wouldn't that be cool? Be a little inconvenient, right? But it'd be cool. I don't know. This auditorium holds 400-ish people. I'm not sure how comfortable we would be with 400 people. But I would love to have that problem that we come together on a Sunday morning and we're like, I got to get there early just to get a seat. What a great problem that would be to have. And see, that's, that's exactly what this parable is talking about, is bringing everyone together. When I look at this parable, I think of the invitees. Those are the members of our church, right? Those are the members of our church. Those are the people we kind of expect to be here on a Sunday morning, so to speak. But he didn't just leave it there. He kept going out and farther out to the point that he was literally willing to walk the streets and just start inviting people to come. That's exactly what Nehemiah is trying to do. Nehemiah wants Jerusalem, the city of God, to be full. So he's casting a big net. And he's inviting everyone to come back to the city. Just like as we are starting to open back up and hopefully things get back to to a little more normalcy soon, I hope that we're going to be inviting everyone to come and share the Lord with us. So we're going to go back to Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 6. So I know you've got to flip back to the Old Testament. Back to the Old Testament, Nehemiah chapter 7. It says, These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. Now we know about Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's all over the Old Testament. He was from the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. He's from the exile story. <coughs> It says, they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. It says, in company with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Remiah, Nehemiah, <laughs> Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpareth, 
Bigve, Nahum, and Bahaka. It says, the list of the men of Israel. So he's going to go ahead and just list off all of the exiles who have returned. Now, I am not going to bore you with this because this goes on for about 40 verses of listing off these different families and these different sections of people and the numbers. But I think just by looking at this slide, you kind of get the idea. Again, this carries on for about another 40-some verses. But I want to jump all the way down to Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 66. Because once we get down to 66, we start to see the actual, what these numbers might kind of look like. It says the whole company numbered 42,360. It says besides, there are 7,337 male and female slaves, and they also had 245 male and female singers. There were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. That's more people than the hometown that I grew up in, by quite a bit. They're inviting everyone to come back. Now, remember, it's important that you understand that Jerusalem, right, was the city of God. It was considered to be the dwelling place of God. So it was important to Nehemiah, now that he had rebuilt this city, to bring the people in. Because the building itself doesn't matter. We're going to jump to Revelations chapter 2. And I know a lot of you are going, ooh, Revelations, I don't want to go there. But there's some important stuff in Revelations. And I want to jump to Revelations chapter 2 and verse 17. It says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now remember, he's talking about the letters to the seven churches, right? And we know that those were letters that were written to the seven churches, seven of the major cultural centers, but they were designed to be shared with all of the churches and with Christians everywhere. It says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. It says, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I mentioned just a few minutes ago that you matter to God. Every family here matters to God. The Hendersons matter to God. The Clarks matter to God. We all matter to God. And we sometimes say, well, what's in a name? Well, it depends on what name we're talking about. Are we talking about the name Christian? Are we talking about the name that Jesus sees us as? Because those names matter. So what does all this mean? We're looking at some symbolism. (coughs) And as we know, The book of Revelation is chock full of symbolism that can be really difficult to understand. But we can can derive, based on what was going on in the world at this time, what he may have meant by these stones. Now, we know that sometimes in a jury trial in this time, a white stone would have been used to prove you were innocent, and a black stone meant you were guilty. So that, that, that may be what we're talking about when he says that If we remain faithful, if we stay the course, we're going to get a new name and a white stone. means we're going to be found innocent, so to speak. There was also a custom of giving people who were victorious 
in a sporting event, a white stone. A white stone was given to the winners. A black stone was given to those who didn't win. And this served as their ticket to enter the awards banquet. So what can we surmise from what Revelation chapter 2, what is John telling us here? He's telling us that our name matters. Because if we want our name to be written on a white stone, then our name matters. It matters to God. You matter to God. And that's exactly what he's telling us in Revelations. we got to stay the course so that we can get that white stone with our name on it. And I don't know exactly what the white stone means. And I may never know exactly what the white stone means, but what I can surmise based on what Revelations tells us is the people that get the white stones are the one that God's happy with. And I don't know about you, but I want to be on that side of the coin, right? I want to be on the side that God's happy with it when judgment day comes. I don't want to be on the other side. Your name matters. So where do we go from here? <coughs> where do we go from here? God created you to be a part of a church and a community in Jesus Christ. We know from all the way back in the garden, right, all the way back in Genesis, we know that man was not designed to be alone. We know that. God even says it in the very beginning. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. When we go to the New Testament and we look at Acts chapter 2 and we see the formation of the new church, right, the early church. We talk a lot about the early church. They were together all the time. They broke bread together. They pooled their resources. The early church was designed to function in a way that everybody worked together. Now, I'm not saying we all go out and quit our jobs and just hang out together seven days a week, because unfortunately that doesn't pay the bills. But that idea is we're designed to be better together. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, we are better together. Think about how much more that we can accomplish as a church that works together than you or I could accomplish by ourselves. Think about that just for a minute. Now, maybe you can go out and you can make an impact in your community. And, and maybe you can go out and make an impact for the kingdom. And I believe that you can, because I think everybody can. But imagine how much more powerful we are when we come together as a church. We have some amazing ministries here at our church. We have the Hands and Feet Ministry. And if you're not familiar with that, they make dresses uh, for little girls in Africa who, who don't have clothing. And it's such an important ministry because it, it, it's, it's proven that when these, these poor little girls don't have clothes, that they become victims. So we have a ministry here at our church that comes together and sews these dresses and then, and then sends them over to Africa. Here a while back, a couple years back, we, we took, a, took up a collection and we provided a well. We provided fresh water for people who needed water. See, we were able to do that because we came together as a church. We have a ministry called the Comfort Cafe where we're able to provide a hot meal and groceries uh, for folks who need food and who need groceries. And, and we're hoping and praying and looking at ways we can get that back up and going. But it takes a community of believers to do that. 
These are all huge undertakings. We can't do it by ourselves. But imagine what we can do together. And see, that's what Nehemiah knew. And that's what Nehemiah got right. He knew that he could only do so much by himself. He had to bring the people together. So I want to encourage you as we, as we continue to, to move forward. And, and, you know, I keep hearing talks that California is getting ready to open up and all this other kind of good stuff. But I want to encourage you to be a community of believers. I want to encourage you to be a family of believers. You know, I, you often hear me say church family. And I believe that with all my heart and soul. And I believe that that's the way that God intended it to be. And I love each and every one of you. We may not always see eye to eye. We may have differences of opinions. That doesn't mean that I don't love each and every one of you. And I hope that you feel the same about your church family. I hope that you love one another. And I hope that as things start to become more safe and things start to open up, I hope that we will come together as a family. I got to see my parents last weekend for the first time in 17 months. And there was nothing better than to spend time with my family after that time apart. And that's exactly what it's going to be like when we can finally all come together again. Now, I'm not saying if you're at home watching the live stream and you're not ready to come back yet, by all means, I'm not trying to put any pressure on you whatsoever. I want you to do what you feel is best for you. But I can tell you that it's such an amazing feeling as we all start to come back together and each week we see more and more of our family together. And I'm going to use one of those cliche words, and it's that synergy, right? We feed off of each other's energy. And I believe that this church here in Mission Viejo can do some amazing things, but I think it takes all of us. So I want to invite you. Come back together. Start to build or rebuild those relationships with your church family. And if you're not ready to come back, that's okay. Reach out to folks by email, by text. Pick up the phone. I know, we don't ever do that anymore, right? Remember, pick up the phone and call people? Guilty, I know. Some of you know that. But you can still be a family. We got to rebuild our church community here in this place. And we're already starting to see that happen. You know, during the pandemic, we actually had about four to six people place membership during the pandemic we're still moving and we're building up steam and we're getting more and more people each week and we're starting to get back to planning things and to thinking through things and to figure out how we can get back out in our community and how we can make a difference for Jesus Christ I want to encourage you to think about that invite people to church I had a conversation with a cashier at the grocery store the other day. I just happened to be wearing my Mission Viejo polo shirt. And she actually struck up a conversation with me and was asking some questions about baptism. At the grocery store, those opportunities are everywhere. We just have to be open to it, just like Nehemiah was open to it. And he keeps saying that God put it on his heart. Spend that time in prayer and meditation. See what God is putting on your heart. If God has put it on your heart this morning to get baptized, you have an opportunity to do that. If you've never had a chance to be baptized for the remission of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, you have an opportunity to do that. Or maybe it's time for you to come back to the family. Maybe you've kind of drifted away. 
Maybe you've been the, the, the kind of strange uncle, right? That everybody talks about, but everybody kind of takes a step away from. Maybe it's time to come back. Because it's never too late, as long as you're still here, to come back to the family and to make things right. If you need to come forward this morning, we'd love to talk to you. We would love to pray with you. We would love to make that happen this morning as we stand together and as we sing. We will worship the Lamb of glory. We will worship the King of kings. We will worship the Lamb of glory. We will worship the King. We bless the name of the Lamb of glory. We bless the name of the King of kings. We bless the name of the Lamb of glory. We bless the name of the King, and with our hands lifted high, we will worship and sing. And with our hands lifted high, we come before you rejoicing. With our hands lifted high to the sky, when the world wonders why, we'll just tell them we're loving our King. And with our hands lifted high, we will worship and sing. And with our hands lifted high, we come before you rejoicing. With our hands lifted high to the sky, when the world wonders why, we'll just tell them we're loving our King.